The system of power turns like a wheel. You can rise to the top through money or steel. You could lift up others or leave them in muck, but it's the poor who will suffer when the wheel becomes stuck. If the problems aren't met with any solution, the wheel must turn in bloody revolution. The vermin will rise as the predator sinks. Let's see then if the fox can outsmart the lynx. Of all the reactions and emotions that Lillian had expected the Silver Hand brooch to produce, sadness was the last. Her new friend, Genevieve Katz, a noblewoman and daughter of a minister, was sitting opposite her in the family home behind the palace court walls. The brooch, perfectly shaped down to the creasing in the knuckles, lay on the table between them. Genevieve wiped the tear off her cheek and picked it up, turning it over in her hands as if seeing it for the first time. I made them all, she said softly. Lillian's heart was still beating quickly in her chest. She glanced over at a large knife rack on the kitchen countertop and readied her body for attack. Now that Genevieve was openly admitting her role in the plot, she was becoming unpredictable, and Lillian had to be ready for anything. But instead of feeling threatened, Lillian began to feel something else. Not anger or hatred at someone who was clearly involved in making her life miserable, but pity. Genevieve set the brooch back down. I'm sorry, she sniffed loudly, trying to regain control. I did not expect to see this just now. May I ask where you got it? Lillian remained silent, not wanting to give anything away. Genevieve looked at her with apprehension. My goodness, what you must think of me. Please. Suddenly, Genevieve was standing. The sound of her chair legs scraping against the stone floor shocked Lillian into jumping up. Genevieve slowed her movements down. Lillian, please, there is no danger. I, I can explain. Please, follow me. She turned and headed over to the large standing bookcase that Lillian had been admiring moments before they'd sat down to drink their tea. Lillian kept her eyes trained on Genevieve, still not fully trusting that she wished her no harm. Genevieve approached the bookcase and reached up to fetch a large, leather-bound tome on the second shelf from the top. Lillian couldn't read the title from where she was standing, but it looked heavy and boring. Confused, Lillian watched her hostess pull the book off the shelf. Instead of the book coming away completely, though, it abruptly stopped when it was halfway out, and Lillian heard a loud click coming from somewhere within the wooden structure. Lillian then stared in wide-eyed amazement as the entire unit shifted open on hidden hinges, revealing a small opening in the wall just large enough for someone to squeeze through. Genevieve turned back to her. Come, see, I promise I will explain everything. 
and with that, she was gone. The hole in the wall had swallowed her up. Lillian glanced at the hallway and contemplated leaving. She had her answer, after all. She knew who made the silver hand brooches. Did she really need to put herself in further danger? Lillian, being Lillian, though, could not resist the call of mystery and found her feet stepping of their own accord towards the secret door. The first thing she felt when she put her hand through the hole was softness. She had expected cold, hard wood or stone, but the wall was spongy. She ducked her head down and stepped through the gap to see that the walls inside were completely covered in woven hessian. Not only that, but the hessian was stuffed with something possibly wool or wood chips, which made these walls crease when touched. A light flared up ahead, and Lillian saw that Genevieve had struck a flint, igniting an oil lamp. A warm glow filled the space, which Lillian quickly realised was oppressively hot. She marvelled at the work that must have gone into creating such a room. The walls and ceiling were all covered in soft, stuffed hessian, there were workbenches all around the edges and a vast array of tools and materials scattered around. Lillian saw sheets of what looked like iron, a large silver breastplate and even two or three swords hanging on the walls. In the corner, she spied the silver coronet and braces she had seen Genevieve wear to the ball. They were resting on a sort of mannequin, which, although beautifully decorated, was looking a little worse for wear. As for the tools, Lillian saw hammers, tongs, files, vices, pincers, and even a small anvil. Genevieve watched her take it all in. This is where I work. As you can see, it's more than just a hobby. When she spoke, her voice was clear and quiet. Lillian realised that there was no echo in here. Any sound was completely absorbed by the walls. Her eyes fell on the hammer and anvil, and suddenly she understood why she had not been able to place the mysterious ringing bell. Any noises coming from within this room would be swallowed up completely, making them difficult to detect even when in hyper-focus. Lillian was having trouble finding the right words. On the one hand, she still felt animosity towards Genevieve, but on the other, this room was just too exciting. She looked up to see a row of shining helmets, some mid-construction. On the wall to her left was a pegboard adorned with hundreds of bracelets, amulets, rings, and all manner of sparkling things. Finally, Lillian spoke. You made all this? Genevieve nodded. A small smile appeared on her face, a hint of pride. I did. It's strange to show someone else this place. I am in here alone most days. I was told that I could never tell anyone and that I had to make whatever I was asked to make. In return, I would be left alone and my father would be safe. Lillian shot her a quizzical look. 
Most of her fear and worry had disappeared upon seeing this hidden workshop. Your father is in danger? she asked. Genevieve took a long, deep breath. How much do you know about the people who wear those clasps, the silver hands? Lillian reached out to pick up a ring in the shape of a badger's head. It was perfectly crafted, down to the hairs and beady black eyes. I know they're not to be trusted. She spoke bluntly, but reminded herself not to give too much away. The comment came out as a little more accusatory than she had intended. Genevieve looked down at her hands, avoiding Lillian's eye. Well, you are correct there. To tell the truth, I have been waiting for many years for someone to bring me back one of my hands. I never thought that it would be a young girl I met at the summer ball. But if you have one, then that means you have dealt with the guiding hand, and that usually means that you have been hurt or wronged in some way. Yes? Lillian stayed quiet, allowing her silence to confirm Genevieve's suspicion. She nodded solemnly and continued. Perhaps you are here for revenge, maybe for answers. I do not know what happened, but I promise I will give you what you need. Just... She faltered for a second, glancing around at her many creations, as if searching for inspiration. Just please don't tell anyone I told you. If it gets out that I'm working against them, then... She trailed off obviously implying some terrible fate. Lillian put the badger ring down and stepped towards Genevieve. It was time for her to get what she came for. My friends and I have been hurt, hunted, beaten and accused of things we never did. Whenever we look for answers, your brooches show up. Lillian was trying to keep anger out of her voice, but she could not help but spit the words. Who are the Guiding Hand? What do they want? And why are you working for them? Many years ago, when my father and I first arrived in Fridos, he was approached by a man from the palace. He was kind and generous, giving us welcoming gifts, explaining that the Empress would help us solve the problems in our community back home. My father came here as a representative, and this man assured us that our concerns would be dealt with. The towns and villages where I grew up are very poor and receive no help from the city, so this was all good news. But weeks passed and nothing happened. Every time my father requested an audience with the Empress, he was either denied it or it was pushed back further and further. He became desperate as he started running out of money. I knew no one in the city and so I started making little things because I was so bored. Some of them I sold, but we made nowhere near enough money to cover our bills my father asked the palace if he could borrow some, and they were very happy and quick to oblige. And so we fell into debt. My father had to work in Lager Quarter every day 
just so that he could keep up with payments. He became very tired and sad, a different man from the one who arrived in Fridos with dreams of helping his home. He began to drink and to gamble. At first I hated him for this, but now I think I understand. This behavior was encouraged, anything to force him deeper into debt. One day the man from the palace returned and demanded payment in full. This was impossible, of course. The sum was far too great. But then he noticed that I had been making bracelets and brooches here in this little room. He said that if I made him what he needed when he needed it, then we need not pay him the money. The first thing he asked for was the top of a cane. Then there was the first brooch. Genevieve picked up a cloth and began to absent-mindedly polish a bronze signet ring. Lillian had watched her body change during the telling of her story. Each word caused her shoulders to relax just a little, as if the weight of a great secret was being lifted. She looked up from her hands and Lillian saw that her eyes were stained red. I'm sorry, I barely know you and perhaps you are here for revenge and I understand that. You can destroy my workshop, I don't care. Hit me if you wish, that's fine. Strangely, it just feels good to tell someone. I'm... A word caught in her throat and Lillian felt her own emotions welling up as well. I'm just so very lonely. I saw you at the ball, and you seemed like you were out of place as well. I was around your age when I arrived here, and I really could have used a friend. And there it was, the final piece of a puzzle that Lillian had been building in her head. A pronunciation here, a turn of phrase there, and Lillian finally realised why Genevieve felt so familiar. You're from the Titan Woods, she said. Genevieve's face looked shocked. The comment had come out of nowhere and she had not expected it, but she smiled. I am, well, nearby, a little place north of there called Rinton. You know the woods? Lillian smiled widely at the memory of her time there. I've been to Hunsberg. Genevieve laughed. <laughs> Very funny. This place is not real. It is. They sound like you, and everyone has a dog, and it's big, but hidden in the forest. And I met someone from the Hundred who has your accent too. Her name was Solvig. Genevieve's face was the picture of incredulity. The Hundred, I know, of course. A few of them are from my town. Where I'm from, you either herd cows or you learn to fight. That's about it. I actually made a helmet for one of them once. They all have to earn their animal, and his was a beetle. She turned around and pulled open a drawer. Inside were reams of parchment filled with sketches. She took one out and showed it to Lillian. Sure enough, it had pictures of a helmet in the shape of a stag beetle's head. Its chitinous plates formed the bulk of the dome, and two terrifying mandibles protruded from the front. Lillian's eyes widened. The sketch was extremely detailed, down to the tiny dents in the carapace that made it seem more organic than mineral. Lillian looked back to Genevieve. She was smiling. 
I thought you were some noble girl out for revenge, but somehow I don't think that's right. Lillian shrugged. Revenge is close, but I'm no noble. She handed the sketch back. Genevieve, thank you for showing me this place and for talking to me. I'm sorry about what you and your father have gone through. You must miss your home. Genevieve nodded solemnly. I know what it's like to be far from your people and to have to keep secrets. I came here today for information and you've given me so much already. I hate to ask more, but that man from the palace, the one with the cane, who is he? Genevieve took a deep breath. She had already crossed so many lines, given away so much that she was supposed to keep secret. This one felt different, though. It's all right, Lillian could sense her hesitation. Whoever he was, this man with the cane was clearly dangerous. I won't let it come back to you or your family. I just... I need to know as much as possible if I'm going to fight them. Genevieve's forehead wrinkled in disbelief. She took a second to think before speaking. You are so young, yet you say you've been to a legendary village, survived an encounter with the Hundred, and now you talk of fighting the Guiding Hand. Who are you, really? Lillian smiled her most supportive and reassuring grin. I'm no one. I'm from a small town in the eastern mountains called Benluna. I'm the daughter of builders and a close friend of sorcerers. My name is Lillian Lausanne, and I'm going to help you. After two more hours and three more cups of tea, Lillian had the name. It came as all secrets do, quietly and with trepidation, unsure whether it would be welcomed or shooed away. She did not recognize it, but was glad to have it. It came with warnings of violence, with a history of extortion and dark deeds. Whoever he was, this man, the one with the cane and the scorpion stinger top, was close to the Empress. He was not a bumbling politician or some sycophantic civil servant, but a shadowy power, unelected and unchallenged. By the time Lillian had finished learning all she could about him, the sun was high above the hill and her stomach was growling at her to leave. She hugged her new friend and whispered a promise to keep her secrets safe and to only share them with those that wished her well. Genevieve, her problems shared and therefore halved, walked with a new lightness. As she waved goodbye from the front door, Lillian saw her real smile for the first time, like a child's silly grin, unburdened by the troubles of adult life. It made Lillian happy and reminded her of why she was doing any and all of this. Soon, she thought, all the citizens of Fridos would smile that way. What are you doing here? Suddenly, a voice, sharp as cut glass, appeared to Lillian's left. 
she had been distracted by her victory and so focused on leaving the court gates that she'd failed to notice the young woman glaring at her from a few feet away. Lillian turned uphill towards the palace to face her inquisitor. For a split second, she had to make sure it was indeed her that had been shouted at. She did not recognize the young woman who stared at her with dagger eyes. What's the matter? she continued. Fox got your tongue? And then Lillian realized who it was. She no longer wore sharp white feathers, but her words cut just the same. Miss Bellaswan, Lillian, emboldened by her successful mission, replied in her most obsequious tone. How delightful! I would have let you know I was visiting court today, but I assumed you would be off playing croquet with the Empress. Miss Bellaswan scowled at the comment. She wore a fine blue dress with white lace detailing around the cuffs and neck. Lillian noticed then that she was not alone, but had broken off from a small group of young nobles who seemed to be waiting for her to catch up. They gawked at the scene like fish peering out of a pond. Lillian didn't mind. She had been intimidated by the crowd at the ball, but now she relished having an audience. Miss Bellaswan's lip curled as if she was being forced to breathe in a bad smell. Croquet was cancelled today. Although I'm surprised you know the game. Don't they just throw rocks into holes in the ground for fun where you come from? This was met with a few titters from the group. Lillian didn't care. Yes, but the holes are filled with dung. You forgot about that part. My mistake. The young noblesse performed a fake curtsy by means of a fake apology. I hear you're the Ben Boobla Dung Pit Champion. You must be so proud. Oh, indeed, replied Lillian, past all pretense of caring. I win every year. The prize is dinner with a young noblewoman, but of course I refuse it, as I would rather jump in the holes than spend an evening having to talk to someone duller than the rocks we throw. Lillian smiled her cheesiest grin, and for a split second she thought she saw the corner of Miss Bellaswan's mouth curl into a smile as well. But as soon as it appeared, it was taken over by a scowl. She looked as though she was about to launch into a tirade of abuse. Her face was even turning the colour of cooked beetroot, but before she could utter the first cutting word, she was interrupted. Serena! An older woman was marching towards them from across the courtyard. She wore a crimson dress and had her hair in tight curls. She was so smartly dressed that Lillian assumed she was on her way to a gala or royal function. Miss Bellaswan's face lost all its redness at the sound of her name. She turned to look at the woman. Mother, dearest. Lillian watched her composure shift completely. The young, confident woman was suddenly a despondent, chastised child. Her gaze fell to her feet and her shoulders slumped. Don't mother dearest me, snapped the approaching woman. I send you to pay your respects to Mrs. Chilton, and I find you dallying with your friends. Serena Bellaswan tried to protest. Mother, I... Enough! Her mother cut her off. You will do as I ask, and then you will go straight home and practice your lute playing. 
please apologize to this young lady for taking up her time. Lillian watched the scene unfold. Color was returning to Miss Bellaswan's cheeks, not from anger this time, but pure shame and embarrassment. Her eyes widened in shock at the suggestion. She turned her gaze back to Lillian and fixed her with a stare so ice-cold and terrible that Lillian could feel her heart freezing from pure hatred. I'm sorry for interrupting your journey, Miss Lausanne. May we meet again soon on an equally pleasant day. She spoke softly, barely able to contain her spite. Lillian dared not reply. Very well. Now, off with you. Her mother barked at her. And no more of your laziness, or I shall be forced to send you to your aunts for the winter. And with a swish of red material, Lady Bellaswan was off, striding towards the palace doors in a whirlwind of pompous anger. A part of Lillian wanted to gloat, to tell Serena Bellaswan to follow her mother's advice and leave, but... Something held her back. There was no sport in kicking someone when they were down, so she kept quiet. Serena must have known what was going on in her head, though, because she fixed Lillian with a murderous glare before twisting on her heel and rejoining her group of friends. Lillian had entered the interaction in high spirits, despite having to verbally joust with someone she'd rather have avoided, but she left the scene feeling sad. She had promised to help Genevieve with her problems, but perhaps she was not the only noble woman trapped in an unhappy situation. Lillian headed for the court gates and briefly turned her head to the sun as she walked. Its heat was just as pleasant here beyond the palace court walls as it had been at the base of the extinct volcano. The thought reassured her. The sun did not care where you lived or how much money you had. Like the moon, it shined regardless. Lillian breathed in a warm, calming breath and made a quick mental note to not stay out in the midday heat for too long, lest her eyes become dazzled and her skin burned. After stopping at a food cart that sold sweet steamed buns, Lillian headed straight to Mr. Twitchit's basement to tell Mr. Atticop all about her morning's discoveries. She was conscious of having left Fretha at home alone for quite some time, but decided that getting food and information to Mr. Atticop was more important. Her pace quickened each time she passed one of Mr. Atticop's wanted posters. Thankfully, her journey was void of Werdian officers or snooping palace guards. She checked over her shoulder more than once before making the turn down the alley to the squat structure that housed the basement trap door. Ever since Breed and her mannerless company had discovered the hideout, Lillian had been nervous about spies. She was confident that Breed would not disclose the basement's location to the Werdian, there was some honour amongst thieves, after all, but she could not say the same about the odd bystander who witnessed a young girl creeping around back alleys and acting strangely. Lillian felt her body relax as she shut the trap door behind her, confident that she had not been followed, 
only to have it tense up again tenfold when she looked into the underground room and saw Mr. Atacop standing with someone she'd hoped never to see again for the rest of her days. Her train of thought was derailed and her body's reaction was so extreme she nearly dropped the steamed buns entirely. Lillian, welcome back. How was your morning? Mr. Atacop spoke with a frustrating calmness. What is she doing here? Lillian bellowed, pointing an accusatory finger as she spoke. The woman who Mr. Atacop was speaking with smiled. She was as tall and beautiful as Lillian remembered her. Her green eyes reflected the patches of sun streaming through the small, grated windows. Good afternoon, Miss Lausanne. It's a pleasure to see you too. Hello, Cassandra. Lillian spat the name with as much contempt as she could muster. Memories of this dangerous stranger flashed into her head. The sight of her masked and hooded face outside the tower window. The image of her frozen in place in the middle of the chalk circle on the stone shelf where she and Mr. Atacop trained. Cassandra the Assassin stood leaning against a table twenty feet from Lillian as cool as a cucumber. She wore a dark leather breastplate and a sleek, dark blue half-cape, the hood of which hung down behind her. It's all right, Lillian, Mr. Atacop reassured her. Cassandra is here on my invitation. Lillian spluttered a protest. But she tried to... She tried to do a job. She failed. Now she is here to discuss our options, which, seeing as you've been outside today, you will know are quickly dwindling. Of all the allies she had expected Mr. Atacop to turn to, Cassandra the Killer was surely the last. It's fine, Cromwell. I understand Miss Lausanne's trepidation. I would not be so quick to trust me either, given our history. Lillian said nothing, but instead took an angry bite out of her steamed bun. She was still seething with rage, so was unable to enjoy its warm, soft sweetness. She walked over to Mr. Atacop, keeping her eyes trained on Cassandra, as if at any minute she would spring into an attack. She shoved the spare bun into Mr. Atacop's chest a little more forcefully than was necessary. Thank you, he said. Hmm. Lillian grunted. Cromwell has invited me here to talk about the Werdian. It seems we share a common enemy. While I understand that you don't have much coin to spare, I think we might be able to come to a mutually beneficial agreement. Lillian swallowed a mouthful of bread. You're going to help us take on the Werdian. Cassandra swayed her head from side to side, weighing her words. Maybe not directly, but we can help you with whatever plan you cook up down here in the dark. We? parroted Lillian. Banner House have a vested interest in seeing the Werdian disbanded. Lillian turned a disbelieving gaze at Mr. Atacop. We can't trust her. I've just spent the morning figuring out who she works for. They're not good people, Cromwell. Before Mr. Atacop could reply, Cassandra defended her position. I work for the highest bidder, and I do what I am asked. And yes, sometimes that includes wearing peculiar brooches. 
I assume you're talking about the guiding hand? Lillian narrowed her eyes. Well, she continued, you are right when you say they are not good people. But in my line of work, one cannot afford to take such a blinkered view of good or bad. Mr. Atticop nodded in agreement. That's what I keep trying to teach her. Cassandra smiled. Well then, I see that the city has indeed not tarnished your kind soul. Lillian was fed up with these two, trading jokes like they were old friends. She chewed and swallowed the last of her bun and crossed her arms in a sulk. She had returned to the basement excited at her progress, but this interaction felt like taking a step back after two steps forward. Mr. Atticop sensed her frustration. Lillian, when you run out of friends, you turn to your enemies. I've done it before, and I should think I will eventually have to do it again. Lillian huffed. Next thing you'll be saying we should team up with Breed. Cassandra shook her head. She would never help. Strange as it may seem, keeping the Werdian around actually works in the favour for many of the city's criminal class. I know, Lillian exclaimed. It was a figure of speech. Twelve hells, you two. I go up the hill for one morning and the world turns upside down. Mr. Atticop's face became solemn. It's been turning for quite some time, Lillian. This is just the latest revolution. Speaking of this morning, did you manage to confirm our suspicion? Lillian shot Cassandra a furtive glance, still unsure whether she could be trusted. It's all right, she said in her cool, clear voice. Cromwell has told me all about your efforts. I have to say that following the brooches was an excellent plan. I never met the person who ordered the hit on you, Cromwell, but their emissary told me to make sure I was wearing the brooch when I did the deed. Mr. Atticop rolled his eyes. Lillian sensed one of his rants about pretentious fools coming soon. He pushed the thought to one side, however, and looked back at Lillian. Does our mutual friend make the brooches? Lillian took a second before answering. She shot Mr. Atticop a look that she hoped would convey the phrase, I hope you know what you're doing, before replying. Yes, she makes them in her home. Mr. Atticop was about to speak, but Lillian was not finished. But she's being forced, threatened by a man who works directly with the Empress. The Guiding Hand doesn't have a leader, but if anyone were to take the title, it would be him. Mr. Atticop and Cassandra glanced at each other. Months of plotting was about to come to an end. Finally, they would have a name, and with a name, there would come a plan. Lillian remembered her vow to share the secret only with those who would wish the best for Genevieve. She did not trust Cassandra, but she trusted Cromwell Atticop. And so she spoke. He rarely leaves the Empress's side. He's about your age, Cromwell, and he walks with a cane. A cane topped with a scorpion stinger. His name is Nicholas Telson, and he is very, very dangerous.
Hello! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I have been Simon Maeder. The music was by Tom Figgins. Season 4 is well underway now, which is very exciting. I'm not sure if I'm going to have to skip a week over Christmas yet, but if I do, I will let you know. I'm planning on running a competition over on social media. It's free to enter, and the prize is a beautiful framed photo of a sort of vintage travel poster with Visit Ben Luna on it, and a beautiful illustration of uh, the Paddestone and the mountain and the moon. You can see what it looks like on our website under the merchandise section. Follow us on social media at Ben Luna Podcast to find out how you can enter. For now, keep spreading the word and keep leaving reviews if you haven't already. That really helps us climb the podcast charts and spreads the word about us all over the world, and it's super useful. Thank you if you've already left a review. The Apple Podcast reviews are wonderful and always keep me motivated to carry on. For now, I will say goodbye. Ben Luna is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. Bye.